We've all seen those sequences in movies or television where the police officer stops a motorist and commandeers their vehicle while in pursuit of some sort of bad guy. Pat, have you ever done that? No. Okay. <laughs> we had it, we, I thought maybe. Now, giving up your car in that situation is the right thing to do. It's also still the law. It's part of the long-standing concept of posse comitatus. That's the official term of this idea. It's where a law enforcement official, typically a sheriff, can deputize and mobilize ordinary citizens for things like manhunts and other extraordinary situations. Now, it may be a staple of old Western movies, but you may be surprised to learn that posses can still be in effect in some places, even the United States. One was formed as recently as 1994 in Hinsdale County, Colorado. More than 100 citizens were deputized and sent house to house in an effort to find some violent bank robbers that were on the lam. In a situation like that, you gotta hit the ground running because every second counts, lives are hanging in the balance. If anyone ever hit the ground running when it comes to the Christian life, it was Saul of Tarsus. After his conversion, he performs one of the most dramatic about-face maneuvers in all of human history. He who had been the foremost adversary of Jesus Christ and his church was immediately deputized and joined the posse, preaching the gospel with boldness and fearlessness. Now, in our text this evening, we'll see the beginning of his long walk with the Lord. It's written more as a case study than a biography, at least our passage tonight. When it comes to the details of this part of his life, Dr. Luke is gonna leave a whole lot of things out that we sort of have to piece together from other passages of scripture. In just 12 verses, Luke is gonna cover 10 years of Paul's life. And we're left to sketch what happened uh, and get an idea of what was going on during most of that time by looking at other things that Paul wrote about in other sections of the New Testament. But remember, Luke's goal as a writer isn't necessarily to just write a history textbook. He doesn't set out to say, well, I wanna be a historian. He is a great historian, but the purpose of his writing isn't to just set down a history text. His purpose is, is to testify concerning the work of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit and through his disciples. He gives us these case studies of how God changes lives and the ways that the gospel went out from power, or went out with power, rather, from a single upper room to the far edges of the known world. Now, in tonight's text, there are a couple of interesting changes compared to the previous eight and a half chapters that we've read. First of all, the focus is now going to start to shift from Jerusalem and Peter to Gentile cities and Saul, who, of course, most of you know, we know as Paul. We'll get a little bit more of Peter's story in the next few chapters, but after that, Luke fully pivots, and the book will center on the work done in Saul's life and ministry out in the Gentile world. That's a pretty significant change that's starting to happen here. But one other interesting change that we get starting in this passage is that we're able to track the development of a remarkable Christian life from spiritual birth through decades to spiritual maturity. So far, we've seen people get saved in general in the book of Acts. We think of you know, the crowds at Pentecost or the crowds elsewhere that Peter preached to where a bunch of people are getting saved. Uh, or when we do see an individual getting saved, uh, their, their part in the story is relatively short and, and it's not really focused on them. 
we're told maybe one thing about them or something that happened immediately in that situation and then they leave the pages of scripture. Think of the lame man at the beautiful gate or think of the Ethiopian eunuch. It kind of zooms in on them for a quick second and then they're gone. And sometimes we know a little bit from church history about what happened, but as far as Luke is concerned, he's been focusing on the 12 and then those people around them that were preaching the gospel in Jerusalem and focusing on them, the preachers, and when people get saved, it shows them for a brief moment and then they leave the page. But with Saul of Tarsus, we are able to see a lot more of the Lord developing an individual and using him in the life of the church along the way. And that's great that we get to see, you know, Paul go from, or Saul go from death to life, right? His conversion, and then see him as a spiritual, what we would call a baby Christian, and see him developing here in this early part. And then we walk with him for decades through the book of Acts. And that's a great thing because Paul, Saul, is presented to us in the New Testament as the example to follow. Uh, he himself would later write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 4, be followers of me. And he isn't talking about, uh, you know, he isn't talking about a Facebook page or a Twitter feed or anything like that. He says, hey, you need, to, uh, you need to pursue Christ the way that I pursue Christ. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Philippians 4, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And so he is the example for us as Christians. And so as we see him and learn from him, and we notice him beginning the Christian life here, we're to be inspired and instructed and then sent out to go and do likewise. Now, by the way, if you want a very good biographical look at the life of Saul, our pastor did a really great series a number of years ago that you can find on our website. If you go to calvaryhanford.com slash Paul, it, 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 doesn't, it takes a look at his life biographically, uh, everything that we know, putting together all of the passages and the references and the research all brought together, uh, go check those out. Verse 19 says this, Saul was with the disciples in Damascus for some days. Saul's our main character tonight, but the supporting cast is really remarkable as well. These Christians in Damascus show some incredible love and generosity and care here. Saul had no family in the city, no friends who would want to associate with him anymore after his conversion to Christ. He had come to town as a killer, but now is welcomed as a brother into the church. I do wonder if, uh, if, if sometimes, I don't know, I don't know, maybe if you're like me, you think, well, it's hard to read humor, and, or it's hard to think of some of these people having a sense of humor. But of course, people did have a sense of humor. It's not just us, it's not just this culture. Of course, they had a sense of humor as well. And I wonder if Ananias had some fun with him the first time he brought him to a church gathering. Okay, this is the secret meeting place uh, now that we're running for our lives because people are trying to kill us. Come on in. Or if he brought him into that first meeting, he says, hey, everybody, hey, Ananias, hey, I've got a guest with me here tonight. His name's Saul. You might have heard of him. In fact, he's the guy we were having a, a round-the-clock prayer meeting concerning for the last week or so because we know that they knew he was coming. They knew what Saul was about. They knew he was there to kill people and drag them away and do all of these terrible things. And now he shows up to church. Uh, that, that is a pretty remarkable thing. Now, for Saul's part, these were probably days of wonderful discovery. It's almost impossible for us to think of the apostle as a baby Christian. But in reality, you know, he must have walked into that first meeting and said, so what do you guys do? 
You know, when you hear the testimonies of, uh, if you go online and you see the testimonies of, of, of Christians who are, are Jewish with organizations like Jews for Jesus and things like that, one of the common themes that you, you hear is that we were taught that, you know, Christian people, they're, they hate Jews and they want to kill the Jews. And, and, and if you go over there and you hear the New Testament, a lot of times you'll hear them say, we thought the New Testament was a book taught, telling you about how to eradicate the Jews, like it's mind Kampf or something like that. And so Saul would have been the same way. He didn't know what the, the, the way was doing. He probably thought they were doing some weirdo and crazy thing. And he says, hey, why don't you come? We're having a prayer meeting on Sunday night. Why don't you come with us? And he would have wondered, okay, what are they doing? What is this about? Someone would have had to explain to him for the first time what communion is and what Jesus said at that last supper with his disciples. Think of the things that we take for granted being Christians and being exposed to Christianity. Even before you were a Christian, you probably were exposed to many ideas from Christianity, right? Um, and, and had basic understandings maybe of what was happening in churches. And Saul probably didn't know any of that. And it had to be told to him and he had to discover and what a great thing those meetings would have been. But he wasn't just a bystander. He wasn't just watching. He hit the ground running in his new position as agent and ambassador for Jesus Christ. Verse 20, immediately he began proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. He is the son of God. Scholars note that there were dozens of Jewish synagogues in Damascus. The first meetings in those places must have been pretty fun too. Uh, as he went around, you know, we're not exactly sure how long he was there, but as he went around to these various synagogues for the first time, maybe for the first couple of weeks before word really got out what was going on, think of how amazing this moment would have been. You're gathered there in the synagogue, right? All the Jewish people. And uh, they notice that, oh, wow, Saul is here. Can you believe it? Saul of Tarsus is here. Man, uh, the Pharisee champion, the protector of Judaism, the one man stemming the threat of the sect of Jesus, the Nazarene, the student of Gamaliel. I can't believe Saul is here. Hey, Saul, do you have anything to share with us tonight? As a matter of fact, I do. You mentioned Jesus. I met him and he's God. I don't know how we could even put this together as and who we could put in Saul's place to realize what a what a crazy world this would be. If we could try to do this in reverse, it would be like if Franklin Graham showed up to church tonight, but instead of preaching Jesus, preached Muhammad or preached Allah. Like, what, what would that even do to our brains? We'd be scrambled, right? And uh, that's what's going on in these meetings here. Now, Saul was a brilliant man who had the finest education the world could offer at the time. He knew more about the Hebrew scriptures than anyone in the room. But his message wasn't complicated, it wasn't intricate, it wasn't some long drawn out theory that only academics could follow. It was Jesus is the son of God. Now, there's a lot in that, but that's a message that any single one of us can share, right? It contains a lot of information and implications and revelations, but you don't need uh, an advanced degree to spread the message and explain what it means that Jesus Christ is the son of God. What does it mean? on a basic level. Well, it, first of all, it means that Jesus Christ is the most important person of all time, right? No one else comes close. There's been a lot of important people, a lot of remarkable people, a lot of smart people, a lot of people who've made a big difference in human history. Jesus Christ is the most important pe person in all of human history. 
Jesus is the son of God. That means he's divine. He wasn't a great teacher. He wasn't a good man. He wasn't just into social justice. He is God. He is divine. It means that God, the creator of all things, put on flesh and dwelt among mankind. Well, why did he do that? He did it because mankind has been ruined by sin and is doomed to hell. But God intervened by sending his one and only son. Jesus, the son of God, was sacrificed in your place so that you could be saved from the guilt of your sin. And since Jesus is the son of God, that means that everything he said was divine truth. It means that God is a God of grace and a God of love and a God of mercy. And it meant, especially in in that context, it meant that Caesar is not God. Now, there's been a lot of cultures and a lot of places throughout human history where the leaders or the kings were considered deities. That's foreign to us, right? Uh, we don't think of the president as God. Uh, that's, that's weird to us. But think in this context, Caesar was considered a God. At least they gave lip service to him being a God. In fact, during this era, many of the Roman emperors like Augustus and Tiberius and Nero used the title Divi Filius, which means son of the God, right? And Saul is coming in to that culture and giving a very simple message, but proclaiming the opposite. No, Caesar is not God. He's not son of God. There is one God, one savior, one true king of heaven and earth, and his name is Jesus. And so very simple message, but it contained a lot. But you didn't need an advanced degree. You didn't need a PhD. You didn't need a flow chart to deliver this message or to follow this message. Verse 21 says, but all who heard him were astounded and said, isn't this the man who in Jerusalem was destroying those who called on this name and then came here for the purpose of taking them as prisoners to the chief priests? We, I use that example of Franklin Graham, but let's, let's use something maybe a little more current. Imagine if at the next Democratic primary debate, which I know all of you watch with bated breath, right? Imagine if at the next Democratic primary debate, For some reason, you decide to turn it on. That's fine. And Bernie Sanders came out and started saying that our country needs to establish a truly free market economy and that we need to end entitlements and that we need to abolish abortion coast to coast. You would think something is, everyone would be deeply confused. No one would even know how to process what was going on. It would be hard to even hear what he was saying because it is so out of character and so unexpected and so the opposite of who he is as an individual, right? The Jews, were told here, were astounded. One Greek scholar explained that that term means to be beside themselves, that they were dumbstruck. They didn't even know what to do. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us that at first it was hard for people to hear what Saul was saying. You know, he's preaching the gospel and this is not a great audience for him. They're not even hearing what he's saying. They're saying, oh, wait a minute, you know, they're completely distracted by what's going on. Wasn't he, I thought he was doing this, this name, what's happening right here? And they're all talking to each other. He's preaching the gospel, telling this Jewish crowd that the Messiah has arrived and they're turning to each other and saying, I, wait, didn't you hear that he was killing people? Didn't you hear that he was here to like arrest all of these people? And so they weren't listening, they weren't hearing, but you know what? Saul kept at it day after day, synagogue to synagogue. Throughout this passage, he demonstrates, even as a very young Christian, persistence and a willingness to face hurdles to his ministry. You know, he uses that great uh, analogy of, of the Christian life being a race that we run. 
Well, for, for the apostle Paul, his race had, was a hurdle race. What do they call it when you have hurdles in your race? I don't know. I'm not a track and field guy. But we think of like, <laughs> what? Hurdles? Hurdles. <laughs> you know, sometimes we think about it as a long distance race or a sprint or whatever, but now his had hurdles, all kinds of hurdles and the mud pit and all this kind of stuff. And it was an ultra marathon. And people were shooting at him while he was running on in this race. But he had a lot of hurdles, even from the beginning, but he was undeterred. Uh, it wasn't easy, but right from the get-go, he was persistent and he was willing to continue even when things got tough. The people weren't listening yet, not, a, not even a little bit, but they would listen eventually as he continued to share the truth of Jesus Christ. So how do we convert that for ourselves tonight? Maybe you have someone in your life, you love them a lot, they're your family, they're your kin, and you are trying to preach the gospel to them, and no matter what you say, it's like, man, they don't even hear me, they don't even listen. Paul experienced that. Jesus experienced that. Just keep at it, and, and, and keep representing Christ to those individuals, and keep believing in the power of the gospel, and keep sharing with them. Now, we learn in Saul's letter to the Galatians that somewhere in verses 21, 22, and 23, he spent three years in Arabia. It seems like it would have been between verses 21 and 22. There's some argument about that uh, in the commentaries. But we know that while he was there, he was receiving revelation from Christ himself, having personal meetings with Jesus Christ to receive revelation. But we don't want to think of Saul there in Arabia as being some weird hermit in the desert, living under a rock in a trance, you know, with nothing going on. It seems that he was busy preaching in Arabia, even planting churches there. And then at some point, he came back to Damascus again, and that's where the story picks up. So from our reading and our understanding here, we get to verse 21, that happens. He leaves for three years into the region of uh, Arabia has personal interaction with Jesus Christ where he receives teaching and revelation and all of this stuff. He's preaching, he's planting churches. Luke doesn't get all into that. And then he comes back to Damascus and we pick back up in verse 22. But Saul grew more capable and kept confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this one is the Messiah. Saul could prove that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. What a comfort to know that what God has told us can be confirmed. If you're a Christian here tonight, you have a provable faith. For example, the accuracy and the integrity of the scriptures are more reliable than any book in ancient human history. Any book. It is the most reliable ancient book in all of history. The resurrection is one of the most provable events of all human history. Thousands of Bible prophecies have been literally fulfilled to the letter. You know, ours is a provable faith. We may not be able to see God right now or see the Holy Spirit, right? But our faith is provable. It doesn't rely on secret hallucinations or invisible arrivals of the Messiah. Well, he came, you just didn't see it. Just take my word for it, right? We, we don't have to have, follow blindly a guy who said, well, I found magic glasses and read magic tablets. Do you have those glasses? No. Do you have those tablets? No, but just take my word for it. We have a provable faith and a provable revelation from God. Now, Luke says that Saul grew more capable. It's pretty hard to imagine the man we know as Paul is less capable, but what a great encouragement for us. Saul had a starting point in his faith, and he developed and matured just like the plan is for every single one of us. 
Along the way, he kept exercising his gifts. He became more effective in his ministry. He learned things. He got better at sharing the gospel and preaching to people. And he didn't have to wait to serve God until he was an apostle, right? He didn't say, okay, well, I have to level up and max out, and then once I'm the apostle, then I can start serving God, and then I can start telling people about Jesus, and then I can make a difference. He started on like the first day. It says immediately he started preaching in Damascus, right? And maybe it wasn't literally the first day. We don't know, but the, the, the gist of what Luke is trying to tell us is that right away, as soon as Saul was converted and he received his eyesight and gathered with those disciples, he went out preaching and was being used by God and served God. Did he grow better and better in the way that he did that? Of course, Luke says so. Did he learn? Of course, Luke says so. But from the beginning, he's serving the Lord and doing the Lord's work and fulfilling that commission. We have been deputized and enabled just like Saul was. And as we continue walking with the Lord and as we continue to develop and mature, then we're going to grow in our knowledge and our ability. We'll learn to overcome hurdles in ministry. In verse 21, people weren't even listening to him, right? But now he's getting some traction by verse 22 though not all of it was positive. Verse 23 says this, after many days had passed, the Jews conspired to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul, so they were watching the gates day and night intending to kill him. We learn elsewhere that it wasn't just the Jews who wanted Saul dead, the Gentile officials wanted to kill him too. How sad that after waiting for centuries for the arrival of the Messiah, the Jews were now unwilling to hear that he had in fact arrived and that he was ready to save any and all who would turn to him in faith. I mean, think about the Jewish community. That's who Luke is focusing on in this section. They have been waiting for thousands of years for the Messiah to arrive. Uh, they had been waiting since the founding of their nation uh, for that one promised seed of Abraham that was gonna put right everything that we've done wrong. And now you have a guy coming and proving that, yeah, he came and you can know him and he can save you. And they were unwilling to receive it. It's a sad, sad thing. Verse 25, but his disciples took him by night and lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the wall. Notice there, it says his disciples, Saul's disciples. What does that mean? Not only was he developing as a disciple himself, it means that he was discipling others. He had you know, in our, you know, parlance as, as people who know more of the story, he had Timothys in Damascus. We don't know their names and we don't know, you know, what happened to them, but he had guys that he was developing. As he had preached the gospel and they were saved, he was then discipling them along, even as he was growing as a disciple. And we're not told the mechanics of how he did that. We just know from the rest of his story that he would preach to people, he would care for them, he would include them in the ministry, he would help them along in their walk with the Lord. We are prone as a society to want to make everything a program or a system, a one-size-fits-all, that if you follow these steps, that's discipleship. Uh, we just don't see that in the New Testament. And that's certainly not always what we need to do. We are commanded to go and make disciples but then we're not given a specific set of apparatus to do that, right? And we see it happening in a natural way as individual Christians are used by God in individual ways in the lives of other individual people. And so the way the Spirit uses us and other Christians to do the work of making disciples is going to be different, person to person, time to time, place to place, right? 
The way you're going to disciple a Christian in Iran today is probably pretty different than the way you're going to disciple a Christian in Canada today. And so this idea that we kind of default to, well, I need the book, I need the program, I need the method to be discipled. That's just not the way that we see it happening in the New Testament. And it doesn't even make sense. We even see that in the life of Paul, right? He discipled Timothy one way, he discipled Titus another way, right? Specifically in regard to how they were going to join the ministry and the things that they would have to do in order to do so. And so we see not the mechanics, but we just see that he was discipling people. So there's Saul making a daring escape under the cover of night. Metaphorically, he had hit the ground running as a Christian, preaching and growing in Christ, and now he'd have to literally hit the ground running, running for his life while the kill squad scouted for him in the city gates. Where would Saul go? Well, his hometown of Tarsus was at least 250 miles away. Plus, he had been headquartered out of Jerusalem before he had come to Damascus. He had no one with him. He had only the supplies he could carry in his pockets or on his back, right? They didn't lower a donkey or a caravan down with him in the baskets, just him. Uh, I bet it was a pretty harrowing experience And so he started his flight to Jerusalem over 130 miles on foot. Now, before we leave Damascus, we should commend the disciples there once more for their generosity and their willingness to help the man who had once been their enemy. I'm sure as they were packing him into the basket that night, they were slipping in whatever provisions they could. I mean, they are just absolute heroes of grace and compassion. We want to be a church like these people in Damascus. I'm sure it was a tense trip for Saul, but... We know he carried one more important treasure with him down that long road as he ran for his life, and he carried the promises of God with him. What had the Lord said to him? We know from Saul's later testimony about this period in his life that Jesus had promised him that he had assignments to carry out. Jesus had promised him that he would speak to kings. Jesus had promised him that he would be rescued from these people who wanted to kill him. And so he had those promises and no doubt treasured him as he made a run for it. What has God promised you? Time fails us, of course, to make even a rudimentary list of, uh, of what God has promised to his people in his word, but there are all sorts of promises, promises for your future and for your present, promises for your relationships and for your heart and for your personal development, promises for your peace and for your help, for wisdom and empowering. You may be lean on physical provision like Saul was that night. You may even feel like you're running for your life through the valley of the shadow of death. Don't forget the promises of God. Search them out in the scriptures. Secure them in your heart. Take them as treasures on your road today. Verse 26 says, when he arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him since they did not believe he was a disciple. Saul clearly thought that connecting with the local church was an absolute essential part of discipleship. He obviously knew how difficult and tense it would be to join with this group, but he kept trying. Uh, I don't know how, I don't know if you've ever really had to apologize for something that, that you did really wrong. We've all had to apologize for things. It's never pleasant, but I don't, know if, I don't know what the worst thing you've ever done where you had to go and own up to it and face it, but I'm guessing it, had, it wasn't b- murder, mass murder. I'm guessing nobody here was a mass murderer and then had to go to the families of those people who you had beaten and you had ruined and you had killed their loved ones and said, hi, 
I would love to be a part of your group now. And I'm sorry for murdering your family. Uh, but he did. That's how important the local church was to Saul. That's how important it was for them to be gathered together and to be unified as a local fellowship. It's pretty amazing. He had spiritual persistence. He had spiritual humility. Despite the many hurdles he faced, he was willing to do what he knew was necessary to do. You know, if Ted Kaczynski was somehow paroled and showed up to church next week and we recognized him, I'm guessing we'd feel a little bit nervous about it. Anybody know who Ted Kaczynski is? <laughs> I tried to think of somebody else, but all the people I thought of were dead. Osama bin Laden's dead, right? Uh, Charles Manson, he's dead. Think of whatever crazy mass murderer you want to. Imagine they showed up to church on Wednesday night, and you thought, huh, there's Charles Manson sitting on the back row. I wonder if we're all about to be murdered tonight. It would be crazy. It would be only natural to feel that way. But of course, the Lord wants the supernatural for us. Listen, the Jerusalem church's behavior may be understandable on a human level, but end of the day, it's a little bit of a disappointment to see them controlled by their fear. Luke says so. He says, listen, they wouldn't accept him because they were afraid and they didn't believe he was a Christian. And especially when we compare them to the disciples in Damascus who were so brave and so gracious and so welcoming. You know, we live in a time when fear is the selling point, right? Fear is the message of the wider world. All the, you know, most products are marketed to you on the basis of fear. Political candidates are marketed to you on the basis of fear. Lifestyles and all these different things are marketed to you based on fear. Do this, do this, do this, do this, because if you don't, bad things are gonna happen. And God doesn't want us to live our lives ruled by fear. Our lives should be defined by trust in the Lord and by the joy of the Lord if we're Christians. The Jews and Gentiles of Damascus had seen enough to know that Saul really was a Christian, right? They knew that he was a Christian. He was so much a Christian, they were gonna kill him for it. It was obvious. The contrast between the church in Damascus and the church in Jerusalem, or even the Jews in Damascus and the church in Jerusalem, drives us to the conclusion that the disciples in Jerusalem simply weren't willing to give him a chance. And that's a bummer. Verse 27, Barnabas, however, took him and brought him to the apostles and explained to them how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. No one wanted to believe that the winter soldier was a good guy except Steve Rogers, right? But in Captain America's Civil War, because one guy was willing to stick his neck out, an innocent man was saved from death and a fierce ally was brought into the team. So what Barnabas does here is really remarkable because he did have to stand alone on Paul's side at first. I'm sorry, I keep calling him Paul. On Saul's side at first. Uh, he had to stick his neck out and hope that Saul wasn't running a, a long con to get into the church and kill all of those people. But you know, the things that Barnabas did here, they're simple. They're all Christian things. We don't know how he researched what was going on with Saul in Damascus, but he got the story somehow and he believed it. And then he was just willing to interact with this man who was looking for other Christians to connect with. And he was willing to forgive the way that Jesus forgives. And he was willing to take real initiative to help Saul. He didn't just say, oh man, sorry, that's tough. Anyway, I'm going to our secret meeting now, goodbye. 
He was really willing to help him. He took Saul in. He brought him to Peter. He spoke for him. He identified with Saul the way Christ identifies with us. It's just a great example to us. Verse 28, Saul was coming and going with them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Again, these must have been hard meetings. I've never had to sit in a church service with someone who killed my friends or family, but God's power is sufficient for even an extreme case like this one. I'm sure many of you followed the case of the Dallas police officer last year who was convicted of murdering a man in his apartment. At the sentencing of that officer, a young man named Brant Jean, who was the brother of the victim, used his victim impact statement time to say that despite what the officer had taken from his family, if the officer was truly sorry for what she did, then he, Brant Jean, forgives her and that his main desire wasn't for her to go to jail, but to, quote, give her life to Jesus Christ. That's amazing. And then they hugged it out on film. It was an amazing moment, an amazing moment of grace and forgiveness. The, the believers here in Jerusalem, they may have been afraid at first and may have been a little bit of trepidation and uh, swing and a miss here at first, but you know, the Christians in Jerusalem did show supernatural forgiveness to Saul once Barnabas brought him in. They were willing to go in and out with him. This man who uh, had hurt them so dearly and so personally. He spent just two weeks in the city with Peter and James, the brother of Jesus. But man, they must have had some incredible conversations, especially those three guys. Because uh, after all, it's altogether possible that Saul was the last one to have seen their Lord. James, the brother of Jesus. Saul maybe was the last guy to see him and talk with him face to face. We are not given an indication that Peter and all these guys were having regular sit-downs with Jesus at this point, but Saul was in Arabia. Can you imagine them saying, hey, how's, how's Jesus doing? What did Jesus have to say? You know, they're, they're experiencing all this stuff with the Holy Spirit, but imagine being Peter and you walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus and lived with him for three and a half years. And now you have somebody who, who had been talking with him again and seeing him again and interacting with him again in a way that you probably missed. They must have had some really great conversations. Verse 29, he conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they attempted to kill him. When the brothers found out, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. The difficulty that Saul had encountered as a result of preaching in Damascus didn't make him want to quit, right? His commission was still in effect. His message was still powerful. His heart still ached for the lost men and women around him. He didn't say, man, I tried this preaching thing out. They tried to kill me. I'm glad I'm not doing that again. I'm gonna go do this over here. He said, hey, I'm, I've been asked to do this by God. I've been gifted to do this by God. I'm gonna keep doing it no matter what hurdles I may face, no matter what it might cost me. Once in Jerusalem, he, we're told he went to the Hellenistic Jews. We should recognize them. This is the same group who had killed Stephen with Saul's approval. He wasn't ducking his past. He was making it right. He couldn't bring Stephen back to life, but he could pick, off, pick up where Stephen left off. And Saul did, knowing full well what that might cost. If they killed Stephen, why wouldn't they kill him? He says, you know what? I'm gonna make this right. I was part of this and I was wrong. I'm gonna go talk to these people and see if maybe we can get them saved. Why was he sent to Tarsus? Well, that was his hometown. No doubt he had family and connections there. He'd spend another seven years there before Barnabas comes to find him again. Verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace, being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, and it increased in numbers. 
Dr. Luke likes to take vitals of the church every three or four chapters or so in the book of Acts. This is the third of seven such assessments. Saul's our focus tonight. So what do we notice? We notice that, you know, yeah, there's peace in Judea and Galilee and Samaria. And there's no church in Tarsus. Uh, Saul's kind of sent, sent home, but put out in the cold. It's just him. While it was a blessing that a wave of persecution had ended, it's hard to know whether the leaders in Jerusalem had Saul's best spiritual interests in mind sending him home. No matter, the Lord was with him and he would use him up in Tarsus for the next seven years. Wherever Saul went, he hit the ground running, even if that meant he'd end up having to run for his life sometimes and he'll have to a bunch of times. Back in 2004 or so, I found myself on a police ride along as part of a requirement for one of my classes in college. After getting in the squad car, the officer pointed a few things out and he says, have you ever used a shotgun before? I indicated that I had and then he showed me the release for the one mounted in between our seats and he said, should the need arise, please intervene. <laughs> Luckily uh, for all of us, uh, the need did not arise, but it was sort of a soft, casual deputization, right? Uh, he didn't swear me in or anything, but it was an interesting moment. You know, when it comes to the spiritual battle for human souls, the need for action couldn't be more urgent. The need has arisen. And as Christians, we've all been deputized and put out into the field, whether you've been saved for five days or five decades. And each one of us is able to hit the ground running in the Lord's strength. Along the way, we should take courage in the promises of God and in our dedication to his service. We should know that we're gonna become more and more capable as he conforms us into the image of Jesus Christ we should know that we should, or we should expect some hurdles to come along the way. And as a group, we wanna be a local body that is full of faith, full of grace, full of forgiveness and generosity, even toward those who absolutely do not deserve it, like us. 